Sometimes you gotta go back to actually move forward. I don't mean all the way back to dental school. Let's face it, that was an awful experience. But when it's all said and done, you still have questions. That's what Paul and Justin are here for. To answer your questions as your dental business mentors. What's up, everybody? This is Dr. Justin. I'm here with Dr. Paul E. We've been going back and forth here and just trying to be as concise as possible to be respectful all year, all's time here. Ten-minute episodes. We've gone over two minutes on each one, but I think you're going to appreciate that when you hear some of the content. Paul, what's up? You think we can do this? I think we can do it, and I, I think we should lead with questions again. Let's do it. Do you own a practice? I do, sir. Or do you want to own a practice? <laughs> You know what? I feel like we're putting this mystery in the beginning episodes, but like the title's already there. And so like they clicked on it. They probably already know what we're going to talk about. Like, dude. Anyway, I like episodes like this because it's timely. We're doing a timely episode now because there's a lot of talk about like people are feeling that the dental industry is changing and, and just like transitions. Like, should I be selling my practice? Is now the time to start a practice? Is now the time to acquire a practice? Where are the valuations at? Just all things like transitions and how it relates to where we are right now in dentistry. So you're going to have a fantastic answer on this. I just know it. So this is a topic. I'm in the trenches dealing with this. I've done, I've acquired a number of practices. We are actively acquiring. I've sold practices. You know, we've been, I've been on both sides of it. I help a number of clients who are looking to buy their first practice and vetting those with them. So there's all kinds of reasons why this this information kind of comes top of mind for me. But what I will tell you is that as a disclaimer before I start is 10 minutes is not nearly enough time to discuss a comprehensive topic. So please don't cherry pick little things and then compare them to some 15 page article and say, well, that was way off. Because if we had time to provide context, we would, but I want to give you general trends, general things to, to understand here. When you put your practice up for sale five years ago or 10 years ago versus today, there are a different set of buyers. Who bought your practice five or 10 years ago? Mainly. Mainly it was an associate that maybe worked with you who decided to take over. It might have been a third party, a general dentist that just graduated. Maybe they're a few years out. They've associated for a while. They're ready for that ownership. And you decided to list the practice with a broker they bought. Maybe it's someone who's very proactive and they reach out to you. You didn't even know you wanted to sell. And now they're they're making you an offer and saying, you know, have you ever considered retirement, sir? Right. And so they want to go and mm-hmm. go ahead and take over. What's shifting now that's different is that we have money that is not coming from the dentist or the bank that they deal with. It's coming from private equity firms. And that money is not money that's readily available to you. It's It's available to the folks that have partnered with these private equity firms. And they're expected to give them a return on that money. It typically works in five-year cycles on average, their recap events. It really just depends on how much enterprise value they can add in order to exit their previous PE firm and bring in the new one. So it's like a financial services game more than, than anything else. And what happens when Wall Street folks and everyone else finds out that there's profit here, it drives up value of practices. So where a company may come in and say, hey, look, sure, your practice looks pretty good. It does $2.5 million or $2 million or a million and a half or whatever that may be. 
you meet the minimum EBITDA or profit requirements, you know, so they start looking at the practices. So you'd be a great partner for us. Now they're going to go tear it apart, make sure it's the right cultural fit. They don't want to deal with anybody who's going to give them too much trouble or ask too many questions or ask for too much support because they're not prepared to, to give that support. And now look, I'm, I'm generalizing here. Remember that, right? Because there's a lot of great ones. There's others that aren't, are driven by profit only. So if you go list your practice today, a lot of these companies, if you have a profitable practice and you, you fit their model, they're going to offer you a multiple on your profit that is above and beyond what a financial institution would lend to a general dentist on, okay? A general dentist who would take great care of your patients or a strategic dental partner who you partnered with who isn't private equity backed, like what we're doing, we have dental partners that we work with, everyone's a dentist that's involved. It's truly dentist run. Anyone who says that a private equity firm company that's been PE backed is now 100% still dentist run, owned and operated. Okay, sure. Let's go with that. That may be true for a small percentage. You know, not every PE firm's the same. They're all a little different. I don't want to go down there because I don't think they're the enemy. I think they're actually, to some extent, a lot of those folks are doing a great job. It's just really what is their intention, right? What's the DSO's intention? Is it to make as much money as possible as fast as possible, which is a lot of them, or is it to truly improve dentistry, improve the patient care, improve the the lifestyle of that dentist through finances, but also support? And there's plenty of those too. So you go list your practice today. The kid graduating can't buy it. Those are blanket statements, but it is very true, which makes it more challenging. But it also makes it very appealing for someone to want to sell. That being said, this is my own data. I've talked to hundreds of different dentists who have sold to a variety of different people, and I've sold my own practices, right? But I didn't sell it to a corporation. I sold it to a dentist. We had corporate offers. We had all kinds of other folks. And like I said, nothing wrong with that. It just wasn't the right thing for us based on the model and structure we had, based on the requirements that they had from us. We felt it would have been better for us to simply sell to a third party and be able to walk away versus some of these retention-related things. So back to my point, you want more for your practice. The dentist can't pay more for your practice, but some other private equity-backed firm can. Who do you sell to? The dentist who wants to sell generally wants as much money as possible. But when you start factoring in other things into that equation, and I'm not going to get into them now, if anyone's interested in learning more about this, hit Paul up. We'll do a, a, a longer episode on it. You really need to think about what the next 5, 10, 15 years of your life looks like. Lastly, let's say you are able to acquire well at a good price, okay? And who I'm talking to here is the dentist who wants, you know, one, two, three practices, maybe just one, you know, not necessarily trying to buy multiple practices or grow some large DSO. If you're that person, you already know what's going on. You've been playing that transition acquisition game for a while. We're not talking to you, right? We're talking to the people that have not bought a practice or maybe did and now They're sort of wondering if they overpaid or whether they should have done it in the first place. So buy right. Don't succumb to what the market is presenting you. Only buy the practices if the numbers work out for you, right? They might work out differently for a PE-backed firm, and they're going to work out differently for you. Maybe you'll lose the deal. Maybe you're going to have to wait a couple years. But I definitely wouldn't start shelling out money out of pocket to pay for these practices in order to compete. Two, when you buy, you have to buy right. Have someone tear apart the P&Ls. Make sure that it's all numbers-based. There's no emotion here. It's numbers and metrics. Lastly, and then I'm going to turn it over to you, Paul, is when you do transition, okay, you need to prepare for this. Like It's not like deal closes on July 1st, 2022, and then on July 2nd, the practice is operating the same way. 
There's a lot of stuff that needs to be done beyond due diligence in preparation for the transition. Everything from setting up meetings with the teams to getting all the vendors transferred to dealing with the collections and all kinds of stuff. And where most clients have bought and come to me afterwards, it's because they're in this mess with the transition They're less profitable, their revenue's dropping, they've lost team members, patience attrition is happening, and they're panicking because they just paid big money for this practice, and now it looks like it's, it's potentially going south or they're working twice as hard. So I think it's really important to buy right, plan in advance, and honestly think about working with someone before you buy. Like If you haven't bought before, don't do it. Just don't buy yet. Like go learn from somebody who's bought five, 10 or more, somebody who bought one and who successfully ran it for a period of time. Talk to as many people as possible, collect the information. And the good news is there's lots of people out there who will help you with transition now. Utilize those resources. Yeah, it's a scary time, man. It's like thinking about even starting a practice or acquiring a practice. With the labor market, how it is now, like I would almost be timid to acquire a practice knowing that you're going to go in there, implement your stuff, implement your culture. And you might lose people and you might not be able to hire and fill them. And it it is a weird time. But the thing is, too, is interest rates are going up. And I hate to say it because it sounds so salesy, but I don't think practices are going to get any cheaper. I don't know. Maybe maybe they will. I mean, do you think the valuations are going to like what we're seeing right now? So we're able to find deals to date. We have been. Moving forward, finding the right partners, sometimes you will overpay a bit if it's the right partner, right? But there's no one size fits all here. I can't give you, you know, a formula to buy a practice every time because there's subtle differences. But in general, it goes back to that. Financial due diligence is number one on the list. That's it. That's number one. You Are you paying what it's worth? Two is, can you actually replicate the productivity of that practice? Like, okay, the finances work out, but can I go in there and do that? Or is the guy going to stay on or is she going to stay on to transition me over the years, right? Like what's the owner risk? Like what is the risk of of the owner? How big of a part are they? You have to buy and cap the downside the same way the DSOs buy and cap the downside. If I see 100 deals, we might buy 10%. If a large corporation sees 100 deals, they might only buy 10%. Some are doing 4%. They're very narrow and specific on what they're looking for. The problem is dentists get fatigued in this process, and it's so hard for them to get their hands on inventory. So the second they get something that looks remotely like what they thought they would get, they start making an offer on it because two or three other people might be as well. Right. And so the, the lack of good inventory, the lack of the higher expectation of of what people want for their practice is putting people in these positions where I think they're buying a little high. I just do. I do not see sustainability at the multiples that we're at. Okay. I'll leave everyone with this. Why is it necessary if truly these models are working, if truly these models are working and PE firms believe that they're going to get their money back, why do people go public? It's generally in the beginning, because they need to earn enough money to go back and pay the investors and keep the promises that they made on the multiples they were going to get. Wonderful. Well, what happens five years later or 10 years later, right? What if that IPO is not successful? I mean, just be careful of the rocket that you hit yourself to. It might go down as fast as it's gone up. And also look at the number of lawsuits that people are in with DSOs that have misrepresented what they're doing, right? There's a lot of companies who have told people one thing, five years later, they realize, oh, dang, I'm here for seven years now, or, oh, I didn't get as much as I thought, or, oh, I'm heavily restricted in terms of what I can do next. I just think you should should do your due diligence. A lot of us learned it the hard way. There's mentors out there that you can have. Don't make an emotional purchase. It's not necessary. 
I think it's really important for you to actually, instead of either considering selling your practice right now, I would think about strategic partnerships. I would think about how can I continue to benefit from this business ongoing and not have to deal with the potential uncertainty of dealing with the corporation and, and filter out those guys too. They might be the right fit for you. And how can I keep this practice for the next decade, right? Like if you're 40 or 50, I would do that. If you're 60, 65, consider the other way. But as a younger doc, uh, you may want to consider all your options before you offload. And before you buy, do the financial due diligence. Make sure you can replicate the procedures. And we'll see where this thing goes. Like This topic is so fascinating to me. There's so much information. I wish I wish I could pull up a PowerPoint here and just talk for an hour because I think it's so important. But the key takeaway here is don't rush into buying or selling decisions. Just don't. Okay. Yeah, it reminds me of like maybe 10 years ago, I had this like, it wasn't Stitch Fix, but I don't remember what it was. It was Trunk Club. And they would send me a bunch of clothes every month. And I would open them up and then I would send back the stuff I didn't like. And I never liked anything they sent me. I don't know what, what happened. But occasionally, I would kind of like something because everything I pulled out of this tr- this box was pretty bad. And I'm like, oh, I kind of like it. But then I would find myself not wearing it because I didn't like it. I just liked it relative to the other crap. So don't feel like if you're looking for a practice that you have to pull the trigger on something that doesn't feel right just because there's not a lot of inventory. That's what I'm saying. And we are way over time. But, dude, that was a great answer. I love hearing what you think about stuff like that. You're just so much more well-versed in that arena. So I think that was great information. Write your questions, info at dentalbusinessmender.com, and we will talk to you next time.